Psalm 41 stands as the conclusion or the doxology, which is an expression of praise. That's all a doxology is. And it stands as the conclusion to the entire first book in the Psalter. How many books compose the 150 Psalms? Okay, five books. We have now just reached the end of book one. Look at the final doxological line. Look at the final expression of praise in verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Therefore, all our fears, as Jared mentioned at the beginning, all our anxieties, all the crippling effects of the time period that we live in are solved in that phrase. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And he's controlling everything between those eternal bookends, if you would. But as the final psalm of the first of five collections, the themes are surprising. So you you might expect it to be to end where it began, like on the two paths of life, Psalm one or on an incredible messianic prophecy, Psalm two or God's spoken word in creation and his written word, Psalm 19. But it doesn't. And it's actually staggering that it doesn't. And I wonder if it's not supposed to sort of pop out at us. Because the the themes are more plain, earthy, and simple. Here's what you'll find in Psalm 41. We will find, again, sickness that needs healing. We again find the attack of enemies. See, this is the stuff of real life. Again, we find a cry for help. And again, we see prayer giving place to new confidence. Look at the first three verses of Psalm 41. Okay, it's already been read. But look at the very first verse. And what does this remind you of? Blessed is the one. If you go all the way back to Psalm 1, sort of the gateway, the entry point to the entire 150 Psalms, it says what? Blessed is the person or blessed is the man. And it says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. So you have these sort of Psalm 1, Psalm 41. Blessed is the person who does this. Now you have blessed is the person who does this. And it's a very important Hebrew word. It simply means to be blessed, find joy or be happy. That's what the Psalms, the whole entire first book of five books starts and ends with. Blessed is the person. And it's not a secret because he's going to tell you exactly what a blessed person looks like or how a person is blessed. So what kind of person does God bless? Look at verse one. Blessed is the one who considers who? The poor. Or the weak. A person who has never helped a fellow human being in their trouble, weakness or poverty has no right to expect help from God in their weakness. Does that sound too sharp? Does that sound ungracious? The person who has shown concern for the for the weak and the poor may confidently seek God's help in his own time of weakness and poverty. It's simply the law of sowing and reaping. And this is exactly what came off of the lips of Jesus in Matthew, chapter five, verse seven. Listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are the merciful for what? For they shall what? For they shall receive mercy. It is a sowing and a reaping principle. Here's what mercy is. Mercy is compassion for people in need. 
It's different than grace. Grace views people as undeserving. Mercy views people as miserable. Have you ever helped somebody who was miserable? Have you ever helped a miserable person when everybody else was walking by? Emotionally, mercy is not pity. Here's why. Pity can stand at a distance, just like the disciples stood at a distance from blind Bartimaeus who was crying out for Jesus. They may have pitied him, but they can do that from a distance. Do you know what? It doesn't say blessed are those who take pity from a distance. Mercy is sympathy. Mercy is moving close to a suffering person who is miserable. That's what Jesus did. He said, blind Bartimaeus, you come here. Get in my proximity. Let me be in your presence so I can help you physically. Jesus touched lepers. So practically, mercy is involved in relieving suffering, not simply noting it and saying, oh, what a poor soul. Blessed is the person who enters into other people's lives and relieves suffering. That's how you know that you can be blessed. And nothing proves more clearly that we have been forgiven by God than our readiness to show mercy. So look at Psalm 41, verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor, who considers the weak, who considers those who are suffering. Now notice what sowing mercy reaps. I want you to see this. We're going to move through this quickly. Look at verse 1. You sow mercy. Here is what you will reap. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Delivers who? Who's the object of that statement? Well, the person who has helped the weak, the person who has shown mercy. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Look at verse 2. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. Look at verse 2. He is called blessed in the land. Verse 2. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Look at verse 3. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Yes, so if those things are true, blessed is the person who is the recipient of those things. But those things are unlocked, if you would, by showing mercy to people who are suffering. Now, having explored the blessing of mercy, the psalmist moves to express his most urgent need. He goes from this general statement to now express his most urgent need. And it becomes clear as you read through the psalm that two things are pressing on the psalmist's mind. Look at the next section, verses 4 to 8. And see if you can see those two things. I really didn't give you even enough time to read one verse, so I'm going to tell you what those two things are. His own sin. Has that ever pressed on you? Have you ever felt that pressure? His own sin and the evil of other people. His own sin. The psalmist asks for mercy from God. Remember, blessed are those who help the weak who help the poor. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Therefore, the psalmist cries out to God for mercy. Look at verse 4. O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. There is mercy and grace when we call our sin what God does. It is an offense or a transgression against Him. This appeal is based on the fact that he has shown mercy to others. It's what Jesus taught again in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Jesus said, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do you want God to do to you what you are doing to others? And has the thought ever struck you that maybe God is dealing with you as you deal with others? Have you ever just turned that 
sort of upside down and thought, well, maybe this is the result of my dealings with others or my words with others or my reaction to others or my slander to others. Maybe he is dealing with me. But here's the hope. Blessed is the one who shows mercy. Blessed is the one who helps those who are weak. Blessed is the one who helps the poor. Where is hope? Look at verse 4. O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. That's where hope is. So that's the first thing pressing on his heart. Look at the second matter pressing on David's heart. It is the evil of other people. And this evil takes two forms. Look at verse 6. Because I want you to help fill in this outline. And I want you to give me one word for each of the two forms the evil takes. Look at verse 6. And when one comes to see me, okay, David's sick. People are coming to see him. When one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity. What would you call that? Somebody comes to see you in your sickness, but all they intend to do is increase the hurt. And then it's focused on empty words. Oh, I'm so sorry you're suffering. Oh, I'm so, I've been praying for you. All the while gathering information to be able to turn around and use it against them. That's hypocrisy. Empty words is hypocrisy. They visit the psalmist in his sickness to fake concern and gather information. Information now that will be used for the second sin, slander. Some people came to visit David only to gloat and spread news that placed him in the worst possible light. And you'll see this in verse 8. They either imagine the worst about the cause of the psalmist's sickness or about the outcome. Folks, how our words reveal our heart. Jesus said this, didn't he? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? It speaks. Do you know gossip is not necessarily untruth? But truth with an agenda, truth with a spin, truth with the intent to damage. It's imagining, think about it this way, it's, an, it's imagining with delight the worst possible cause or outcome of another. That's what it is, and that's exactly what they were doing to David. Look at verse 8, Psalm 41. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. See, that's what they're hoping. They're hoping he dies. And sometimes we do the very same thing with our words. And maybe we don't hope that somebody dies, but we hope that their character dies. We hope that their integrity is questioned. We hope that the ministry is compromised. And there's a certain twisted delight in that. That is what is pressing on the psalmist's heart in Psalm 41. See, people love to spread news about others that lower them or that knock them down a few notches, that cast shade on someone. Listen to this. Proverbs eleven thirteen. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Proverbs twenty nineteen. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. And I think in our culture, in our society, even our evangelical culture, we have come to think of gossip and slander as harmless. But the New Testament lists these sins, gossip and slander, directly along with these other sins in Romans 1, 28 to 30, with envy, murder, strife, and hating God. 
So no wonder this is pressing upon the psalmist's heart. Now, having expressed those two things, his own sin and the sin and the evil actions of others, he narrows the second down even further. It's almost like he is he is focusing in with a zoom lens. I want you to see verses nine to ten, because this is the specific matter pressing on the psalmist's heart while he is suffering with sickness. Verse nine. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. This is what happened. David's own trusted circle had turned on him. Someone close to him had betrayed him. Verse nine. Do You know, perhaps the most painful episode I would think. In David's life was the revolt of his own son, Absalom. Betrayal already hurts. But the betrayal of a child, that has to be one of the most painful episodes in David's life. But alongside Absalom was another trusted friend, and his name is Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a political advisor who abandoned the king to follow the rebel prince. Now, we've already considered the principle of sowing and reaping. So consider this. I just want to sort of put the principle out in front of you before we consider Ahithophel and another very well-known betrayer. Within the principle of sowing and reaping, there is the element of time woven into it. Ask any farmer. I mean, some of you have gardens. You didn't just plant a seed and water it and wake up the next day expecting to pick fruit or vegetables. It's as if a young boy, a young teenage boy, wants to get big and grow stronger and build muscle. And so he goes to the gym and after working out for two days, he said, I'm quitting. It's not working. Right. I'm just I'm sore and I'm weaker than than when I started. It's just not working to which we would say what? Just wait. Stick at it. Just wait. Eventually it becomes stronger and bigger. It's the young lady who begins vaping and after a week says, see, my lungs are fine. It's not damaging me. She said, I even went to the doctor and had a scan and it, and, and it shows that the vaping has not harmed my lungs, to which we would say what? Just wait. Or a man who wants to eat a dozen crisp, a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts every day and two double doubles from In-N-Out Burger. Sounds pretty good right now. No, the burgers, not the Krispy Kreme. And he says, see, there's no difference. It's not going to harm my health. I'm not going to get fat, to which we would say, keep eating a dozen every day and two double-doubles every day. And we would say what? Just wait. And in each of those cases, you will see the effects. Do you know there's an effect to betrayal? There is a reaping of betrayal and of slander. Ahithophel was an opportunist and a betrayer. He gauged the winds, cast his integrity to the wind, and placed everything on a bet that Absalom was the sure investment. Let me read to you out of 2 Samuel 15. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And with that was one of David's trusted counselors, Ahithophel. 
1531, it says this, and it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, do you know what his immediate reaction was when his friend turned on him? When his friend aligned with his son who already turned on him? He prayed. He said, oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. In 2 Samuel 17, 1, it says this. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. So when David was at his weakest point, his own trusted friend Ahithophel wanted to march with thousands of soldiers and murder David. You know, the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. You already knew where they stood. It's a friend who betrays. Or a parent who betrays. Or a sibling who betrays. Or a teacher. Or a coach. Or somebody you trust. In 2 Samuel 17.6 it says, And when Hushai, who was purposely planted by David, Hushai came to David and David said, You go back, you align yourself to Absalom and Ahithophel, and you try to undo the counsel. So David actually took part in the strategy of his prayer. Make his counsel foolishness. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? Shall we march? Shall we take David's life? Is this the opportune time? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. I want you to note this, though. It was good strategically. It would have secured Absalom's kingship. If he would have marched with that many men, they could have exterminated David. So Ahithophel's counsel was wise tactically, but God placed through David Hushai next to him and he said, no, it's not good counsel. In 17 verse 14, it says, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. And then there's this parenthetical statement. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. You know what's been happening all along? God was in the details. The betrayer is betrayed. There is an element of time woven into sowing and reaping to which we would say just wait. Every action has a ripple effect. Second Samuel 17 verse 23. I want you to hear this. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed... He saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. There's another more famous betrayer. We all know his name. His name is Judas. We see Judas named among one of the twelve. He was there to witness Jesus' miracles, hear his words, and experience his kindness and his love. Judas was a witness to Christ's perfections. He saw Christ's goodness, his kindness, his deity. Judas carried himself well, so much so that the other 11 disciples trusted Judas. Men like Peter and Matthew and John, they trusted Judas to carry the money bag. Judas spoke well. His statements were laced with concern for the poor. Do you remember that? Oh, this perfume shouldn't have been wasted. We could have sold it and given the money to the poor. Maybe he even quoted Psalm 41, 1. Blessed are those who take care of the poor. But Judas is a fake. And as the narrative unfolds, we would simply say this, just wait. 
Matthew records this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. By the way, what were the other disciples doing? They were making preparation to observe the Passover meal with their Lord. No, Judas slips out, goes to the chief priests and says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And then all of a sudden, as you're reading, Judas is there at the table observing a Passover meal with Jesus. He's eating and drinking at a religious feast with the Son of God. And if that's the only snapshot you saw, you would say what? That's not fair. How in the world can that happen? To which we would say what? Just wait. You see, Jesus did know the heart of Judas, just as he knows all hearts in this room. In Matthew 26, Matthew says this in verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Jesus did. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. By the way, eating a meal with someone communicated what? Friendship, support, faithfulness, loyalty. The Son of Man goes as it is written, Jesus said, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And it only says this about one man in the history of the world. Listen to this. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. And so we wait. Jesus is with most of his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. I say most because one is absent. One was making a profit on another man's life. One was making, taking advantage of an innocent man's life. And that man finally appears and we see Judas approaching with other men. Who are those men? You remember this? They came to him at night and there's a whole band of men and it is a mob formed by religious people. Matthew records in Matthew 26, verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, listen to the title. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. This stood out to me as I looked at Psalm 41. Jesus said to him, do you know what the first words out of Jesus' mouth are? Jesus knows exactly what's happening. And I think this is communicated on purpose. Listen to the first word. Friend. Friend, do what you came to do. See, it's friends who betray. Enemies have never feigned loyalty or support. They were always very clear with their intentions. It is a friend who betrays. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Absolute injustice. The evil of religious people to which we must say, just wait. And as we wait, a very sad scene emerges. Matthew is still recording. He's writing it all down. And in Matthew 27, verse 5, it says this. I want you to hear this. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed and he went and hanged himself. Exactly what Ahithophel had done centuries earlier. 
Have you ever felt the sting of betrayal? Beyond physical suffering, it is the relational anguish of betrayal that may be the most pointed. False accusation, slander, it pierces deeply like a knife into the soul. And do you know this? Jesus felt the sting of betrayal. Centuries later, Jesus would quote Psalm 41, verse 9, and apply it to himself. Listen to John 13, 18, as you look at Psalm 41, verse 9. Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 41. This betrayal then moves in Psalm 41 to a surprising concluding idea, and it's that of delight, which which we would probably not have put right after betrayal. Look at verse 11, Psalm 41. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Do you know that since Christ had already applied a portion of the psalm to himself, it is not out of bounds to apply those two verses to Christ as well. As a matter of fact, it seems more true of David's greatest son, Jesus, than of David himself. There is something true of God's anointed king, Christ, that is not true of earthly kings. Verse 11, you delight in me. See, Jesus knew that the father delighted in him. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. True. At the resurrection, it's true. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Here's what is so beautiful about this sort of unfolding narrative. Judas' betrayal did not allow Christ's enemies to triumph over him. As a matter of fact, the way God designed it, it actually played into the narrative perfectly so that when Christ was killed, when he was crucified, what happened? Three days later, what happened? He rose from the dead. Not even the enemy of death has any power over him now. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Only a perfect sinless offering would be risen from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That brings us to the last statement of book one. Look at verse 13. Blessed be the Lord. The God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. I'm going to invite our music team forward. We're going to sing two hymns of response this morning. The first song we sang just two weeks ago, but it's fitting to do so as the conclusion of book one of Psalms. It's the hymn, Our Great God. Let me just read to you a few lyrics and then a verse. Eternal God, unchanging, mysterious and unknown, your boundless love unfailing in grace and mercy shown. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. Psalm 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And the second hymn we will sing together is, Oh, praise the name, which says, I cast my mind to Calvary. How did he end up there? Betrayal. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. 
Psalm 41, verse 9 to 10. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. And listen to this. This is Old Testament. And raise me up that I may repay them. God did raise Jesus up. And you need to know this this morning. In John 3, verse 17 to 18, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But be warned of this truth. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 8. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you, O Lord, Psalm 41, verse 10, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Do you believe in Christ for your safety, for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sin? Let's pray.